Good morning, good morning. Uh, my name is Elliot Cherry. I'm the uh, pastor here at Midtown 12 South. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, if you're new or visiting, uh, we're very glad to have you here. We would love to get to know you. Um, if you've been around for Januaries of the past, um, then you would know that historically in January, we, we do somewhat of a similar thing each January, each beginning of the new calendar year. We kind of start the year off with a little bit of just a, a reminder of who we are, a reminder of, of what we are about here, of what we care about here. Um, we, we tend to start the year by looking at our vision. You may not know this, but Midtown Fellowship Church is one church in this city, but you are sitting at one of the locations, one of the congregations of Midtown Fellowship Church. So Midtown Fellowship Church has five, soon to be six, um, congregations in this city, but each iteration of the movement, each iteration of the family of churches can seem like or can appear like in a lot of ways to be its own uh, location, its own local church. It functions like one. When you walk in here this morning, you may not realize that we are a part of a family of churches known as Midtown Fellowship Church, but you're at the 12 South location. Uh, like siblings in a family, each congregation kind of has its own identity, its own gifts, its own role that it plays in the family of churches. That we're not, um, it's, not a, it's not a franchisee model where every, every campus looks and feels the same like McDonald's where we serve the same exact french fries and all that. There's a little bit more creativity and flexibility in our family system of Midtown uh, Fellowship Church to kind of be who we are inside of the family unit. So what is, what is 12 South? What do we um, believe in here? What, how do we seek to advance uh, the kingdom of God in Nashville that maybe is similar to other members of our family at Midtown, but not the exact same as, as say, our Creve Hall location or our East Nashville location or our Granny White location down the street or our West Nashville location and soon to be uh, our Napier uh, location in the Napier housing development. So there's a lot of different iterations of Midtown, but 12 South, where you are, is its own, in a lot of ways, local congregation. So what are we about? What is 12 South? How have we taken up the mantle of the, of the kingdom of God uh, in this city? What are the core values at Midtown 12 South, and what is the, what is the driving force uh, behind what we do here? Who are we? What are we about? And what do we care about at Midtown 12 South? I'm going to show you something that's uh, never been shown uh, before publicly. It's because it's a little bit uh, new-ish. It's actually ancient in its uh, source, but it's new in its form. Uh, 12 South, this congregation, uh, we developed over the last six or eight months our own vision statement at Midtown 12 South. Our elders and our staff have talked about it and edited it and thought about each word, and we're going to talk about it this month. So here is, presenting to you for the first time, uh, publicly, uh, the 12 South vision statement says this, we are a church that believes in the importance of Jesus and the word and how it transforms us to be the church to our world. As we grow and mature in Christ, we believe we become agents of renewal and revival in our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, city, and beyond. One more time, we are a church that believes in the importance of Jesus and the word and how it transforms us to be the church to our world. As we grow and mature in Christ, we believe we become agents of renewal and revival in our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, city, and beyond. Every word of that uh, vision statement was thought about, was prayed over, was edited. One of our elders is an author, so he thinks he knows words, you know, and so he had thoughts about grammar and stuff. Um, but it, but it, was, it, was, um, it was meticulously and, and intentionally uh, talked about over the last uh, six or eight months, and, and we've landed on this, and we believe in it. Uh, partially why that's important is because one of the little factors that we learned in our survey that we did between Halloween and Thanksgiving is that about half of the people that are currently calling Midtown 12 South home on a Sunday attendance basis uh, are new since COVID. And so um, about half of you have no idea that Midtown is even a family of churches. About half of you don't even know what we believe and what we're about. And so it's good and it's fitting. We can tell, by the way, which half of you doesn't believe, doesn't know. Okay, uh, I'm kidding. Um, and it's, it's good to be reminded. Um, so this, if you've been around Midtown, hopefully what I just read didn't shock you. That would feel very normal. Like, yes, that, that seems like what we believe around here and, and how we function and what our purpose in the world is. And we're gonna talk about all that. But 
for those of you that are new to Midtown, this is, this is a good summary of who we are, what we're about, what we care about, and what our vision and mission is in the world. So for the month of January, we're going to talk about that first sentence, the first sentence of our vision statement. It's not that the second sentence didn't matter, but it kind of bleeds into the second sentence if we understand the pillars and the core values of the first sentence. So we're going to kind of break apart that first sentence over the next several weeks as we talk about our vision at 12 South. And today we begin with the first part. We are a church that believes in the importance of Jesus and the Word. Jesus and the Word. Jesus and the Word. These are, these are two very important pillars, uh, really interchangeable pillars for us here. So why is it important to begin with that? Why is it important to begin with th- that part of our mission statement? Why does our vision begin there? Well, partially it's because everyone in this room and everyone in this city, everyone that you know, um, has a creed. And here's what I mean by that. Um, you have a statement, in you, even, if it's exp- even if it's implicit and never been stated out loud, you have a creed that drives everything you do. You have a creed that you, that you don't even maybe necessarily even realize, but you have a creed about what you believe about ultimate things. We believe everybody has that. And in fact, not only do we believe that everybody has that, not only do we believe that everybody has a creed that they're living out of, that they're living um, in, in reflection of, but you have a source for that creed. You have a place, an authority in your life that you have given trust to that says, teach me about ultimate things. Show me what is true and good and real in the world. And I will learn from you and I will take from you and I will, I will declare what I believe to be true based on what you tell me is true. All of us have a creed. And if you have a creed, you have a source for that creed. You have a guiding revelation for your life. And what happens is, is that our creed, what we believe to be true about ultimate things in the world, even if you don't know it, it seeps out of you. You can't make a statement of belief in the world. And I don't care if it's what you believe to be the best taco shop in the neighborhood or what you believe to be about the end of the world or what you believe to be about government to be true or what you believe to be about health. And what, you cannot make a statement about what you believe to be true that doesn't also reveal to the listener what you believe about ultimate things. Everything you do in your life reveals what you believe to be true about the world. You have a creed that you live out of, and you have a creed, because you have a creed, it comes from a source that you have trusted to be an authority to lead you and teach you on ultimate things. Everything you do assumes and teaches something about the nature of God, the nature of sin, the nature of human beings, and the nature of eternity. In other words, everyone in this room is a theologian. You have something that is guiding you about what you believe about the Lord. You have something that you believe about the divine. In other words, you're devoted to doctrine. Even if you don't know it or admit it, you are devoted to a doctrine. You are devoted to your belief about ultimate things. And that belief bleeds out of your life. How you vote shows what you believe, and I'm not commenting on either side. I'm just saying what you believe about ultimate things decides who you vote for. How you spend money shows what you believe, where you go to school, where you send your kids to school, what neighborhood you live in, where and how you vacation. Everything about your life seeps out and displays for the listener and for the watcher what you believe about ultimate things. You are living your theology. You are living your doctrine, whether or not you know it or not. And what you believe, your doctrine, your theology, comes from a source. It comes from what you've decided is the ultimate giver of real and true and ultimate things. And modern people, which you are one, uh, and I am too, modern people tend to at least balk, uh, if not reject, the idea of that word doctrine. It's common, even in spiritual matters, to say things or hear things like this. Well, we've, we've now grown and evolved and we've been enlightened enough to know that doctrine, we, we've moved beyond doctrine now. Doctrine doesn't matter anymore. You just can't get beyond doctrine. That when somebody says you shouldn't involve doctrine in religion, please understand that's a doctrinal statement about religion, <laughs> That's saying something about what you believe about religion. Or when someone says you can't know anything for sure about religion or about ultimate things or about higher truth, you can't know anything for sure, 
that's a statement about what you believe and what you are sure about. That's a statement about your doctrine and what you believe about religion in general. And this is, this is, this is a little bit, um, this is a, a more subtle version of this, but a common credo, something that is seemingly as harmless as this. Can't we all just forget theology and doctrine and just love and accept each other? On, on the surface, that sounds like a beautiful statement. Buried beneath that is a deeply theological and anthropological statement about what you believe about humanity, what you believe about ultimate things, what you believe about God. That is a doctrinal statement. Can't we just get beyond doctrine and just love people? Thank you for telling me your doctrine. Now I know what you believe. Now I know what you believe to be an ultimate thing. I'm not saying it's a bad statement to make. I'm not criticizing the statement. I'm saying, can we step back for a moment and see that all of us, whether or not we know it or not, are living out of a doctrine and that you are a theologian? So I've canceled all social media in my life except Twitter, which is a terrible decision because <laughs> Twitter is an absolute dumpster fire, okay? It's the, if you're going to pick one, it's the worst one to just stay on. I've got my reasons, but it's, it's terrible. For whatever reason, I can't, I can't keep up with it all. For whatever reason, this week on Twitter, one of the things on my feed that was getting a lot of hate was the Nicene Creed like the creed from the Council of Nicaea, it's like 1,700 years old and people were throwing arrows. I don't know, what, I don't know who lit the fire, I don't, I don't know. But everybody was commenting on the Nicene Creed. I've got a riveting Twitter feed, okay? Um, but here's, 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 what, here's, what, here's what somebody said in criticism of the Nicene Creed. This Nicene Creed, historical document of ancient truths of the Christian faith that's been, the church has been saying it and repeating it for 1,700 years. Here's what somebody said. We should leave historical creeds behind because creeds, by their very nature, intentionally leave people out of a circle who don't agree with everything that the creed says. So we should leave historical creeds behind because creeds intentionally leave people out of the circle who don't agree with each line. Basically saying creeds are by nature exclusive and so we should remove creeds from our practice in religion and faith because they intentionally keep people out that don't agree with every line of the creed. The problem with that is is that the statement we should leave creeds behind because creeds intentionally leave people out is a creed. <laughs> That what happens if I don't agree with every line of that creed? Am I now left out of your circle? Have I now been left out of your inclusive circle because I don't agree with your statement, your creed about creeds? I know we're getting into like fourth layer of inception here, but there's, there's, there's a reality of going, you can't get beyond making a creedal or doctrinal statement about anything. What you believe to be true about the world comes from a place that you believe is a source of ultimate truth, and what you believe about that source will guide your guiding doctrine of life, and that guiding doctrine of life will affect how you live in all areas. I know we're getting a little bit meta, but stick with me. So here's a question. Based on that, do you know what you believe about God? Do you know what you think he's like? Do you know which God you think is the true God? And more important than that question, how you answer all that, a way more important question that swings us back to our mission statement is this. Who and what is your authority in answering those questions? Please don't be so naive to think you don't have a doctrine that guides your life. Do you know where your doctrine comes from? Do you know what is informing your truth? At Midtown, we answer that question, who or what is your authority in answering the question that will guide your doctrine that you live by? Midtown's answer is the first chunk of our mission statement, Jesus and his word. Which means we believe, what we believe about Jesus and his word is that they are a trustworthy authority to reveal ultimate truth. We believe Jesus and his word are a trustworthy authority to guide us in revealing what is ultimate truth. What we believe about truth here, what we believe about ultimate things here, when it comes to ultimate truth, is we believe that truth is not discovered, it is revealed. That's a big statement to believe. What we believe about ultimate things is that ultimate things are revealed to us from a source, not discovered by those that decide they're going to find what's true in the world. We believe truth is revealed, not discovered. Because we believe that, 
about what is our guiding principle and source for ultimate things of doctrine and faith and practice. It has an enormous implication for all of our categories, for our epistemology. How do we think we can learn things? How do we think we can know things? It has an enormous implication for our missiology. What do we believe our role is in the world and how can we accomplish our mission in the world? It has an enormous implication on our eschatology, where we think this whole thing is headed, how we think the end of time is going to be, what do we think Jesus' mission and plan for the world is. We believe all of those things. We answer all of those questions because we believe that Jesus and his word are a trustworthy authority to guide us in revealing what is true. Okay, so that was a really long intro. Sorry to for the be the bearer of bad news because that was just an intro. <laughs> But over the next several weeks, we're going to be spending time in one scripture passage. And here's why we're spending time in one scripture passage. This scripture passage is going to show you where we get our mission statement from, our vision statement from, and to show you that we didn't reinvent the wheel, that we borrowed, we just rewrote, but we just borrowed the vision statement of the early church. That's all we did. We're, 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 we didn't... We didn't come up with something new that's never been heard or seen before, that our vision statement is not, um, is not meant to wow you and go, oh my gosh, no church has ever put it like this. Actually, our hope is, is that you would go, actually, all churches have put it like that. That's actually, we're just stealing from them. We're just, we're just using what the church has used since day one. So we're going to the first church, the early church, the very first gathering of Christians, the very first organized church in the book of Acts. Who were they? What were they about? What did they care about? And I hope when we read this passage, you go, that's where 12 South got their vision statement. They just totally stole that. And I would go, yes, that's exactly what we did. So here we go. Acts chapter two, we're gonna be in this passage for the next couple of weeks. We're gonna read it in its entirety every week. But we're only gonna talk about a little bit of it. And again, I hope, I know this is a lot. I hope you're connecting the dots. Acts chapter two is where 12 South gets its vision from. Here we go, Acts chapter two, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, by day by day, by day by day, those who were being saved. Sorry, little movie reference. So here's what we're going to do today. We're only going to focus on the very first statement, uh, or the very first line of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That should be your mirror to we are a church that believes in the importance of Jesus and the word. The early church said it this way, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That word devoted means to occupy oneself with diligently, to pay persistent attention to, to hold fast to, to continually be in, to subscribe oneself to, to devote oneself to, to commit oneself to, to never stop coming back to. They were devoted to what? Well, the passage of Acts 2:42 through 47 says about three or four things that they were sincerely devoted to. The very first thing that the early church, the first church, was devoted to, that gave themselves to, subscribed themselves to, submitted themselves to, was the apostles' teaching. What it could have said in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is what the early church was devoted to. It's the same Greek word. It's the same exact Greek word as this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. The apostles, those that were commissioned and sent out by Jesus at the Great Commission, those that, that knew Jesus personally and had a physical interaction with him that were commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Those apostles taught things about Jesus. Those apostles believed things about Jesus. Those apostles um, had a truth that they believed was true about Jesus, and they began scattering and spreading that truth and teaching that truth. And that is their doctrine. And the early church was devoted to that doctrine. A few verses before our Acts 2.42 verse, 
about 3,000 new converts come to faith in Jesus. Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people convert. It's a really good sermon to conversion ratio. Okay, I don't know what my highest is, but that's probably, that's pretty high. Uh, one sermon to 3,000 converts, working on upping mine. But these new converts, here, here's what's interesting about this. 3,000 new converts come to the faith, like two verses before this. And then right after that, we're told, hey, in this early church that was adding to their number day by day, sometimes 3,000 at a time, the first thing that early church was devoted to was to the apostles' doctrine. It wasn't that when new converts came to the faith, Pentecost has happened and the Holy Spirit's spreading like fire and they're speaking in tongues and it's going to the ends of the earth. It wasn't that they said, we've got the Holy Spirit now. It doesn't matter what we believe. Let's just go with the Spirit and we'll be good. The early church, when they found, when they had conversions and when they gathered in their local towns and homes and in synagogues and, and in the temple, when they were gathering as a gathered body like we are here, what was the first thing they were devoted to? They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. These 3,000 new converts were saying, teach me. I want to learn about Jesus. I want to know what the truth is about Jesus. I want to know who he is. I want, a, I want a theology about him. And apostles, you have been sent to teach me your doctrine about him. Teach me. So what was the apostles' doctrine? What were they teaching about Jesus? What was their theology? That this early church, the first organized church in history, in all these towns and all these cities, what were they devoting themselves to when it says they devoted themselves to doctrine? What was that doctrine? What was the apostles' teaching? Well, an easy answer, not a wrong answer, but an easy answer would be what we just said together before I got up here, the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed is an ancient creed. Again, it's older even than the Nicene Creed. Um, it's, it's, it expresses the ancient truths, the orthodox truths of the Christian faith. Um, it, it is as early documented as the second century, like in written form. People were writing what we just said for almost 2,000 years. People have been saying that exact line. It wasn't always called the Apostles' Creed. In the second century, it was called the Old Roman Creed, but it always expressed the original pillars of historic Christianity. This is what we believe about ultimate things, about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the church and forgiveness in the world and that Jesus is returning. We believe these things. Tradition would say that the apostles wrote down that creed, what was known as the Old Roman Creed, that then turned into what we now call the Apostles' Creed in its very same form. Tradition would say that it was written in Acts 2, like the passage that we just read, the apostles' teaching, they wrote it out in Jerusalem as like a hub, as like the original church. This is what we believe. Send this out, this old Roman creed. This is, they probably didn't call it old. Send out the Roman creed. Send out what we believe to be true. So that's an easy answer. What was the apostles', what was the apostles teaching? What was the apostles' doctrine? We just said it together. But if we wanna answer that question, uh, not just through history or tradition, what were they teaching that we know that they were teaching from the Bible? It's really helpful. The book of Acts has in it sermons. Sermons that the apostles were going around preaching all across the Roman Empire. What were they preaching? There's over 20 sermons recorded in the book of Acts. They're much shorter than mine. I'm sorry. They were, they were way better with their words. But they, they were preaching. They were just going to towns and preaching. These 20 sermons. You want to know what was the apostles teaching? You can read it. Do you want to know what almost every single sermon in the book of Acts is about? It's about Jesus being the Messiah that the Old Testament hopes and promises and prophecies were all about and how Jesus, God incarnate, not only fulfilled the Old Testament hopes and aches and longings and prophecies and promises that were buried in the 39 books of the Old Testament, Jesus is your long-awaited Messiah, but not only did he come and live and die and rise again and ascend, he's coming back one day. Every sermon connects the Old Testament to Jesus in the book of Acts. In other words, you want to know what the apostles were teaching? They were teaching about the centrality of Jesus and how he fulfills all the Old Testament hopes and longings and promises, which means, what were the apostles teaching? They were teaching the Bible. Because their sermons then became letters that they wrote to other churches. And you know what we call that? The New Testament. And the New Testament letters are all about how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes and promises and aches and longings. And he came and he died and he suffered and he rose again and he ascended and now he's coming back one day and we wait for that day. That is the apostles' teaching. And I didn't make that up. You can read about it in the book of Acts. 
And then those same apostles went on to write the New Testament. So when Acts chapter 2 says, what were the apostles teaching, you can read it. And guess what it is? It's the Bible. And I don't mean that to oversimplify it. What we call the Bible, God's word, is the apostles' teaching. It's recorded for you. And I'm not even getting to the historical validity of all this. I'm happy to do that with you. But if you'll just go with this for a second, that the Bible is in its historical form preserved. What the apostles were teaching is what we call the Bible. All 39 books of the Old Testament, all 27 books of the New Testament, together the apostles were going, this is truth. And we're telling it to you and we're teaching it to you because we knew Jesus firsthand. We walked with him. We were commissioned by him. And he is the fulfillment. He is our Messiah. And our Messiah has risen again and he is coming back. The early church devoted themselves to Scripture. It was their guide. It was their comfort. It was their authority. It was their source for all matters of life and godliness. And so that is where our commitment to it comes from too. Scripture is our trusted authority. It is our trusted source of revelation. Not because we've just decided that we think that's a good idea, but it's because the church has been doing that since day one. Again, please don't be so naive to believe that you don't have a creed. And in that, please don't be so naive to think that you don't have a guiding authority that you have given trust to to say, you can guide me in developing what is my creed of life. You have an authority that gives you your creed. You have a guiding revelation for what you will allow to teach you about ultimate things. And for the early church, they had one too. And for the early church, for the very first church, their guiding authority on all matters of revelation of ultimate things was scripture. Scripture was their revelation of truth. That's why they devoted themselves to it. That's why we do too. So, if scripture was their source of revelation of truth, and it's our source of revelation and truth because it was the early churches as well, here's what we're gonna ask as we close. Just two things. What does scripture reveal? If scripture is the source that reveals ultimate things, what does scripture reveal? We're gonna look at two things. What does it reveal to me about me? And what does scripture reveal to me about Jesus? Since we believe scripture is a trustworthy authority to reveal ultimate truth to us, what does scripture reveal to me about me? And what does scripture reveal to me about Jesus? Well, the first one, uh, what does scripture reveal to me about me? Again, lots of things. I don't mean to oversimplify it. But the preeminent thing that scripture reveals to me about me and to you about you is that it reveals to you, reveals to me my sin of pride. Christians have long viewed pride not just as any old sin but as the original sin that generates every other sin and vice in your life. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has an incredible chapter on pride. You should go read it and memorize it. He calls pride the essential vice the utmost evil. He says pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. And here's what he's saying. Here's what Christians have believed for a long time about this deadly sin is that you and I don't commit any sin or vice without first committing the sin of pride. How is that possible? It's because for us to commit any sin or vice in our life, for me to lie, for me to lust, for me to be greedy, for me to break any of God's laws, I have to first decide in my heart that my way of living is better than his way of living. I have to take on the cloak of pride and say, I will decide what is best for me, and I think that that is different than what God has decided is best for me. And I will choose to do what I want to do, and that is better for me than what God wants me to do. The way I want to do things is better than the way the Lord has ordered me to do it. In other words, we become our own authority. We become our own source. We become the highest truth source in our life and we decide I will get to say what is the truth for me in this moment and I will do the thing that I want to do in this moment because I get to decide what is best for me in this moment. We become our own source of revelation. We become the highest trustworthy being on matters of faith and practice. It started this way in the garden with our first parents Adam and Eve, 
They decided in their own minds, we get to decide what's best for us, not the Lord. We will be autonomous. We will give ourself auto law, namas, autonomous. We will give ourself a law that is better than God's law. And they have passed down that generational sin to each of us, and each generation has taken up the family resemblance. Like pride is not a sin of modernity. It is a sin, it is a human condition sin. And yet, here's, what's, here, here's, what is, here's what's so deceiving and so subtle about the sin of pride that we don't believe anybody is immune to because we believe it's a human condition problem, not a generational or cultural problem. What is so slippery about it is that no one actually ever thinks they're committing this sin. <laughs> I think with a lot of people, sit down for coffee, sit down in my office, grab lunch, grab beer, zzz, and, and I say things like, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? What's hard? What, where, 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 is the, where is the heartache? Where is the valley? What's going on in your life? Almost never. I, I can't remember one. I'm not going to say never because I, I don't, maybe I've, I've forgotten. It's so small that the percentage would be minuscule that someone would sit down across from me and go, yeah, you know, I'm just really, really tired of my pride. Like pride is just eating at me. It's, 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 um, it's destroying me from the inside. I am, I am addicted to my pride. No one thinks that this is their problem, which is prideful. It's actually the proof that pride exists is that you and I don't think we're that prideful. We're so prideful, we don't think we're prideful. I was on vacation this past week, Sanibel Island. Anybody been to Sanibel? Four of you, great. That's, uh, well, let's keep it that way. Uh, my wife's grandma has been going down there for, four, is her 44th year going to Sanibel. Timeshare is glorious to be with precious Mormor um, at her, at her uh, timeshare. Um, but I was, I was depleted, I was exhausted, you know, long year. Had the church leading leading the church through COVID and, and Advent rush and Christmas and all all the things and Omicron's here and we're just we're just exhausted we're just tired so I, I knew kind of going into the trip like I'm I'm tired I'm, I need a break I would love for this trip to be rejuvenating and I would love for this trip to kind of you know inject some fuel back into the tank so I'm waking up in the mornings the second morning we're there I get up to see the sunrise. I'm going to have some time with Jesus just to be still and get some solitude and, and be in, in nature, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to refill the tank. And the Lord had me in Psalm 36, which is an amazing psalm. Psalm 36, verse 2, punched me between the eyes of the heart. And here, here's, here's what Psalm 36 uh, says, and here's what got exposed in me. Psalm 36, 2. In their own eyes... The wicked flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. In their own eyes, the wicked flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. Okay, so here's what the Lord said to me in that moment. I know you're tired from all these things. I know you're exhausted from a year and four kids and Advent and COVID and Omicron and all these things. Uh, That's not the only reason you're tired. Part of why you're so exhausted is because of your pride. Do you know how exhausting pride is? Because here's what pride makes us do. It makes us do what Psalm 36.2 just said. It makes us see ourselves with flattering eyes. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I don't, I don't mess up too much. I haven't done that many wrong things. If there's a problem in the world, it's not mine. Pride makes me always see myself in the best possible light. The wicked see themselves with flattering eyes. Always giving myself the benefit of the doubt, always neglecting and refusing to see my own depth of depravity. Here's what pride does. It makes us master defense attorneys of our own actions and cruel judges with the actions of others. Do you know how exhausting that is to keep that up? to always have to have the reason why you're not that bad, to always have to have the master defense attorney answer ready as to why you did what you did, to always be justifying your actions, to flatter yourself, to see yourself in the best possible light, and to see others in a not so great light, not as gracious light. Pride is exhausting. Flattering eyes is a treadmill that never stops. And you know you're dealing with a prideful heart. I knew I was dealing with a prideful heart this week, coming into this vacation, hoping to get some rest. 
when the only problems in your life are secondary problems. Here's what I mean by that. When you think about what's wrong in your world, are they proactive or reactionary problems? Meaning this, is why you do what you do your fault or other people's? Well, I only, I only did that because, you know, they, I only lost my temper because of, of how I was treated. Or I only looked at that website because an ad popped up. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't heading down a dark path on my own. Something happened to me, and pride will make me play the victim card and see myself in the least guilty way possible. I, I didn't do anything that bad. I only snapped at you because you worked late again. Well, I only worked late because you keep snapping at me. I don't want to come home. How many times when you're describing what's aching you, what's ailing you, what's wrong with your world, are your problems secondary problems? Meaning, you are not the primary problem. Psalm 36 would say, in your wickedness, you flatter yourself. That's your pride talking. When we love to say, you know, I'm, I, just, I, I know that I did some wrong stuff, I know that I messed up, but I only did that because When our pride is talking, we can't see ourselves rightly. We flatter ourselves. It's the way that pride loves to stay off the radar. It's the way pride loves to sneak underneath the curtain. It's the way that pride loves to still control the machine even when it doesn't seem like it is. Pride loves to have you and I flatter ourselves. And it says in Psalm 36 too, flatter ourselves too much to where we can't see or hate our own sin. That's what pride does to you. And Psalm 36 calls it wicked. What, what if the curtain was pulled back for a moment? What, what if pride was off the table and you weren't flattering yourself anymore? You didn't see yourself with flattering eyes. What, what, if, what if it really is as dark deep down in you as you're afraid it might be? What if you really only do, only think about you all the time? What if you really are so self-consumed that you wound people when they try to get close to you? And what if sin isn't a secondary issue to you? What if it's a primary issue to you? What if you quit flattering yourself when the way you talk about your family? What if you quit flattering yourself the way you, 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 you keep talking about the world and what's wrong with it? What if you quit flattering yourself with the way that you talk about the problems in your life? As long as your pride refuses to see just how prideful it is, if you follow that road of pride, do you know where pride wants to take you? Do you know where pride wants to lead you? It wants to lead you into utter isolation. Because here's how the road of pride ends when all we do is flatter ourselves and I'm not the problem, I only did that because I was only reacting to something, I was only responding to something. I'm not a problem, I didn't choose to do that, I would never be so dark. What if the problem really is us but we never see it that way? Do you know where pride wants to keep leading us? Into the isolation of this. I will experience no intimacy when I have pride. Zero. Because in my pride, guess what I will never do? I will never choose to love you. I will never choose to let you get close to me. I will never choose to be vulnerable with you. I will never choose to let my guard down. Pride will not have it. Because it flatters itself. I'm the good one here. If there's a problem with intimacy, if there's a problem with health, if there's a problem with shalom, if there's a problem with flourishing in my neighborhood or in my family or in my community, it's not mine. And pride will keep me isolated and I will never experience intimacy in my life if I'm, willing to, if I'm committed to holding on to my flattering view of myself. So what would it look like to quit flattering ourselves, to quit thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought? See, when we're prideful, when we refuse to see how we wound and harm people to get close to us, when we refuse to see sin as a primary issue and not a secondary issue, we refuse to see the wreckage that comes from people trying to be in close proximity to us. The Bible would say that pride will not just destroy you, it will bring disaster on an entire community. It'll bring disaster on your family, it'll bring disaster on your neighborhood, it'll bring disaster on your church, it'll bring disaster on your city, it'll bring disaster on your career. Pride will destroy anything in its path. 
And the Bible's not just talking about the individual destruction that happens with prideful people. It means that no flourishing and no beauty and no shalom can happen in the world as long as pride is not dealt with. Israel, the, the, the nation of God in the Old Testament, gets uh, to kind of the low point of their pride valley, which they're in kind of perpetually, gets to the low point in their pride valley in the book of Judges. Book of Judges has a repeated line over and over again, like 10 times in the book, this line keeps repeating itself. Book of Judges says, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Pride led to an autonomy, which is where pride wants to lead, into an isolated autonomy. You know what, there's no king on the throne. I'd like to think I'd make a great king. You know what, I've got some policy that I'd like to enact in my family. I've got some ideas of what is right and wrong. I've got some ideas of how I think this should be done best. And if there's no king on the throne like there was in Israel, I'll just step into that seat. And guess what, everybody thought that. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so that, that's kind of the, the, like the guiding truth, that's kind of the guiding reality uh, thesis statement of the book of Judges. If you zoom out from Judges and you take the book of Judges, the story that it tells, the picture that it paints, do you know the picture that the book of Judges paints for the reader? Do you know how the nation of Israel was doing at the end of the book of Judges? It was a cluster. If I wasn't preaching, I would add another word onto that. It was an absolute cluster. It was a disaster. There was no justice, there was no peace, there was no flourishing, there was no love, there was no mercy. Pride didn't just destroy those that sought to be their own king. Pride destroyed the entire nation. It spiraled the country out of control and it ended in utter tragedy. That's how Judges ends. And it's meant to just whisper at you the whole time. The thing that's causing this disaster, the thing that's causing this chaos in the land of Israel is that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Pride destroyed Israel. Amen. They were suffering from the chaos of expressive autonomy. And Judges is a case study in autonomous pride and not only what it does to the individuals who commit it, but to the community that they're in, to the world. So why are we talking about this? Everybody glad? Happy New Year. Everybody glad we're here talking about pride? Why are we talking about this on, on this first day of the 12th South Vision series for the next couple of weeks? It's because, remember, you have a creed you have a creed about ultimate things, about what you love to believe about you, about what you love to believe about the divine. And if you choose to have the view of yourself that the Bible has of you, you and I must start by knowing that we tend to, are born into a view of ourselves that always wants to look at us with flattering eyes. And when a community does that, over and over again, and it is not taken care of and it is not dealt with, pride will bring disaster to the world. That's like perfect timing. Way to go. I'll baptize that baby so soon. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't even know that baby. That, that pride doesn't allow for flourishing or peace or mercy or justice to exist in a community. And pride is attacked when we look at what our creeds and our doctrine say about ourselves. What does the Bible say about you? It says that you love to view yourself with flattering eyes. And when we do that, we bring disaster to the world. Read a fascinating journal article this week by a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas, kind of the legendary longtime Duke Divinity professor. It was an article on modern ethics. If you email me, I'll send it to you if you're into that kind of thing. But he basically says, and I just kind of stumbled upon this reading some other things online, but um, he basically says, hey, uh, modern ethics, you want to know what's ethical for the world, what's going to bring good to the world, what's going to bring healing to the world, what's going to help erase poverty in the world, what's going to stop injustice in the world, what's going to make human beings flourish permanently. You want to know what, that's, that's what ethics wants to talk about. How do, you, how do you bring that into the world? As long as modern ethics refuses to deal with the issue of pride, it will have no lasting impact. 
that if, if human ethics and the study of it and the research on it and the implementation of it does not deal with human pride, it will be limited in its scope. You cannot bring beauty to the world until you deal with the human condition of pride. And we say all that to say the Bible's revelation has something to say to you about you. Are you listening to it? Have you heard it? But praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that the Bible doesn't only show you who you are. The Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible also reveals to you who he is. In Exodus chapter 34, there's a wild story. I know I'm kind of bouncing all over scripture this morning. That's the point. Uh, But in Exodus chapter 34, there's this wild story where Moses has led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And they've gotten to Mount Sinai, and they're camped out on Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on the mountain, and the people build the golden calf, if you're familiar with these stories. But Moses is up on the mountain, and he's having this mystical, intimate, crazy experience with the shadow of the Almighty on the mountaintop. And he asked the Lord, he says, Lord, will you, will you show me your face? I want to see you, I want to know you, this God of Abraham, this God of Isaac, this God of Jacob. I want to know you, I want to see you, I want to I I I get to see the real you. Will you show me your face, show me your glory? And the Lord says, well, I can't show you my face because humans can't see my face and live. It's, I'm too overwhelming for them. But I will show you my glory, but I will cover your eyes as I pass in front of you. But Moses, I'll hide you in this rock and I'll pass in front of you. And you will see my glory, you will see my goodness, but not all of it. But you will hear, I will reveal myself to you. I will speak to you and I will tell you what I've never told anyone else. I will reveal my full self to you, Moses, with my words. So he does. He passes by Moses and he hides Moses in this rock and he covers his eyes so that Moses can only hear of the glory that's passing in front of him. And this is what the Lord says to him. This is what the Lord reveals to Moses about who he is. He says, I am the Lord. I am merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Five things. I'm merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That revelation of who the God of the Bible is will go on to become the most oft-repeated description of the God of the Bible in the entire Old Testament. It's repeated dozens of more times. Who is this God of the Bible? He just told you. I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In a moment where Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory, the answer the Lord gives was a revelation of who he is and what does he say to Moses in summary. Moses, behold my glory. I am far more gracious than you could ever know. What makes it even more striking when he says, Moses, I I have committed myself to you. I will not leave you or abandon you. I, I I am a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. I am full of mercy. I am slow to anger. I'm full of compassion. When he says this to Moses, what puts that in its context and amplifies its beauty is this, is that the God who says that to Moses is the same God who on every page of scripture is certain to communicate, oh, by the way, I have a free will. And I do what I want to do. That's what the God of the Bible constantly says. I am the potter. I am the maker. I am the infinite one. I am the transcendent one. And no one is my counselor. I don't need you to tell me how to do anything. The God of the Bible is constantly saying that. And it's that God. That God says to Moses, I get to choose to do whatever I want to do. And what I want to do is be committed to you. The revelation about God is this. He is the truly autonomous one. And in his autonomy, he chooses you. I am the Lord. I am merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I am committed to you, Moses. And do you know how you can trust that commitment? It's because I am the one that decides what I'm committed to. And so you can't change it. I am a God that is this way. And guess who made me this way? Me. 
So when I say I'm committed to you, you can take it to the bank because I do that because I choose to do that. The truly autonomous one chooses to commit himself to his people. And that commitment doesn't stop with Moses. It carries the Old Testament storyline from Moses through Joshua and the settling of the promised land through the time of the judges. That commitment of God to his people carries the storyline into the kingdom years with Saul and David and Solomon and the divided kingdom. That commitment of God to his people carries the storyline into the, the exile in Babylon and the return with Nehemiah that we studied this fall. And that commitment of God carries the storyline through the 400 years of silence. And finally, the commitment of God to his people culminates in the revelation of the same God that stood on the top of Mount Sinai and passed his glory before Moses and revealed who he was to Moses. That same God climbed up a different hill in the person of Jesus. He climbed the hill of Golgotha and said, behold my glory. This is who I am. The theologians for centuries have talked about the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus as a revelation of God should astound you. That the autonomous maker, the autonomous creator God had a choice to reveal who he was and what he was like in whatever way he wanted to do that. You know how he did it? On cross beams. And said, behold my glory, I passed before Moses but now the world can see what I'm actually like. He revealed just how far his commitment and steadfast love and faithfulness would take him. It would take him to pouring himself out for those that flatter themselves. You don't know a God like this. Whatever you think of this God, you don't think of him well enough. This is the God that chose to pour himself out for those that flatter themselves that yes, Midtown, yes, Elliot, you are unfit to be king. But the Bible would say, let me tell you what kind of king Jesus is. He's the king that in his free will has chosen to commit himself to us in spite of us. So Midtown 12 South is a place that believes in the importance of Jesus and his word. And we are devoted to that because it is through his word that we see just how devoted our Jesus has been to us. Let's pray. Jesus, our pride um, causes us to flatter ourselves. We refuse to see just how dark the well is. We refuse to see just how deep the darkness goes in us. And so instead of flattering ourselves this morning, Jesus, would you humble us as we come to you now through communion? Would you reveal who you are to us, and would you reveal who we are to us, we pray in your name. Amen.